Hi, my name is Ephraim Brynin and this is the Bear Yourself podcast. Each week we'll have a different guest bearing on and sharing their journey. This week I spoke with Simon Thomas. Simon comes or came to prominence in the late 90s working on the kids TV show Blue Peter before going on to present live Premier League football on Sky Sports. In 2005 Simon married his partner Gemma and in 2010 their son Ethan was born. But in 2017 Gemma was diagnosed with a rare form of blood cancer and sadly died just three days later. In this podcast, Simon talks about that time in his family's life, how he felt and how he dealt with it and how he continues to deal with it to this present day. This is Simon's story. Simon, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ephraim. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. Yeah, not too bad at all, thanks very much. I hadn't realised, well, I had realised, we're of a similar age um, yeah. children of the early 70s uh, <laughs> and I hadn't realized when I did a little bit of research your background pedigree of running the marathon a couple of times and the bit that really interested me was the skydiving oh yes that was Blue Peter so, days how did that. that yeah how did that come about so Blue Peter had had a history of doing lots of military films down the years and they'd done skydiving Quite a few times, been a number of presenters from John Noakes to Janet Ellis to Stuart Miles, who was on the show when I joined, who'd all done skydiving. Um, and of course, the generation of people watching Blue Peter changes every few years as kids get older and a new generation starts watching. So I think it was about the fourth or fifth year I was on the show, so I was on it for six years. They wanted to revisit the skydiving um, story again, and they'd known that I'd wanted to do it. So um, they approached me and said, look, we've got this idea, which is for you to learn how to skydive and we will go out and film you with the RAF Falcons in San Diego. So everything was, was, was set and I went out with them to San Diego in January. I can't remember what year it was, I think maybe 2004. And was all set for what I thought was going to be the best couple of weeks ever. And sadly... Um, by about day four or five, it turned into an, an absolute nightmare. Ah, what happened? <laughs> or do I not want to know? Well, you can, um, what happened was, is that every time we would do a jump, obviously it needs to be filmed because it's going to be on the telly. So as well as a, a crew on the ground filming us from a long way away, um, we had a skydiver with all the camera equipment on his helmet who would drop down with us. And when you learn to skydive, you have an instructor with you. So I had two. Uh, and so they're there to make sure you get that right. And then eventually as you get more confident, then they begin to let go more. So down we were going. I think it was jump number five. And everything had been okay up to this point. I mean, it is, listen, I, I love daredevil stuff. And I love just that sort of slight whiff of danger and death in the air sort of gets the old blood flowing and the adrenaline flowing um so the first few jumps have been okay and then on this jump i just remember going to pull my shoe i think when you're training you have to pull at five and a half thousand feet so we were jumping at about twelve and a half thousand so you get about 40 seconds of free fall and then your parachute opens and then you are on your own and i went to pull my parachute at five and a half thousand feet and it, it all felt a lot longer than it was but i just initially there's this nothing happened there's nothing above my head i'm not feeling that jolt as the kind of parachute inflates and you go from 120 miles per hour to, mm. to floating very serenely through the sky and then mm. i could sort of feel what felt like a sensation of someone kind of punching on my back and eventually the chute opened and, and down i came 
And then after every jump, what they would do is they would review it by showing you the video and they'd go, right, this is good, this is not so good, you need to get your feet into that position, your legs are not quite right, and all this kind of thing. So it's a really useful tool to learn quickly. They did say later on they probably should never have shown me this video. So I watched, <laughs> I watched this video. And that sensation of kind of feeling this sort of thumping action on my back was actually at the moment when I pulled, nothing did happen and the parachute didn't pop out. And you can see Toby and Roger on my side sort of banging the backpack to try and get the parachute out. And eventually it came oh out. Oh my God. I just totally lost my bottle. Um, because it's, it's a huge... Well, I don't blame you. Yeah, it's probably one of the biggest games of faith or trust you can play because you are essentially exiting a perfectly healthy aircraft <laughs> and then putting your trust in a load of nylon string and two bits of fabric. One's your main sheet, one's your reserve. And if both fail, you know what the outcome is. So it's it's a really weird thing to do. And you're it's, relying on something having packed it, aren't you? That's the other thing. Someone's packed it properly and it's been checked. And Well, I remember that horrible story coming out where someone, I think it was here in the UK, wasn't it, had his, had his nylon string snipped and then carefully packed back in and they never knew that it was faulty and then he went up yeah. and jumped and we know what happened to him. So, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a massive amount of trust in, in the person who's packing your chute every day because... Even if they pack it slightly wrong, it'll open, but you'll get what's called a really bad opening, which is very uncomfortable. So it's, it's an amazing test of faith and trust. But I did, I did eventually, basically the whole trip came to an end and we did go back a year later and I conquered my fear and we produced a really amazing second film. So, Well, well done to you. That takes, takes a lot of bottle. And do you keep up in now in terms of obviously uh, your general well-being? Do you do do you still run? Do you do stuff with with Ethan? Do you do a lot of sport? I mean, I know you, your background with the interest on the Sky Sports side of things, but is that mm. something you, as part of your general daily re regime, if you like, well-being regime? Yeah, I do find I, I find exercise is a really important part of of my everyday. In fact, I've just come back from spending near on two weeks up in Birmingham at the Commonwealth Games and I was very lucky to be hosting the beach volleyball venue right in the heart of Birmingham for nine days of competition uh, and it was really really good and we're working for this organisation called Progress Productions so they put all, all the entertainment at the various venues so I was the kind of guy on the mic whipping up the crowd getting them ready for the day's play and we were staying in halls of residence so it was a bit like being a student again um, for those for those 11 days and it's in a like, really tiny kind of student box room. And I just thought ahead of going, I'd seen the picture of what, what sort of size the room was and I'd seen the schedule and thought, oh my goodness, we're not, it's not going to be much time for A, your own downtime, but B, no real time for exercise. So I actually decided, because I was driving up, I'm going to take some of my exercise stuff here and take it to the room. And I took stuff that I could use while I was in the room. Because actually for me, that was... That was a really important way of managing those nine days, both physically and mentally, um, because it was exhausting. A lot of fun, but exhausting. And so I found just by having 20 minutes in the morning, it was quite a small little session, or going out for a run, really helped set me up for the day. And mentally, I wasn't, you know, wasn't struggling at all over those 11 days I was in Birmingham. But I think it's, it's just about habit forming, isn't it? And I think it's about being yeah. in the best place you can be when... You know, sometimes in life, something difficult strikes, whether it, it might be a, a sudden change in career or a loss of job, a loss of someone, whatever it might be. It's about being in the best mental and physical shape for when those moments do come. So I, I find that's really, really helpful. I took the decision back in January of this year to um, 
quit alcohol, which for a number of different reasons have been um, kind of a bit of an Achilles heel for me. So I've cut that out and it's actually been one of the best decisions I think I've ever made in terms of my overall well-being. It just it, it enables you to deal with stuff in a, in a far clearer uh, and less stressful way than, than normally. It normally adds fuel to a stressful situation. Sadly, it's taken me quite a number of years to get to that realisation point, but that, that's been a really important thing for me. So kind of cutting that out, you know, being fairly disciplined in exercising him, even when I don't really feel like it, are kind of little... But they're the parts. best ones, aren't yeah. they? Those are the ones where you think, I just cannot be bothered <laughs> and there's, I could just sit here yeah. and do nothing for an hour. Yeah. Uh, and then hate myself because I've wasted that hour. But those are the ones where you get the, the biggest reward, um, and especially when the weather's like this. There's, a, there's, a, there's an excuse not to do these things. And I think it, it, I'm the same as you. It's My emotional health is intrinsically linked to my physical mm. health. And if I can keep the two married in, and you, alcohol's an interesting thing. And I'm guessing, going back to your career in media, I guess alcohol is one of those things that is always kind of there. I guess it's... I mean, why... How, you've been in the media... Mm. Um, side of things for what 20 odd yeah, years yeah. 20 plus years starting all the way back then I'm you're just a, a face that I kind of like you bring a bit of um security I guess because it's like a newsreader you see them every night yeah. and, and they bring sort of security and sanity yeah. to your life just as you're one of those guys that I've used to be being used to seeing on the telly since I don't know I guess it's late 90s early yeah, late 2000s 90s, yeah. with blue Peter and then obviously into the sky things but I wanted to pick on that, up on that as you as you were running through that career in media, and I've never done anything like that. I dabbled it for a couple of mm. weeks when I did SAS Who Dares Wins, and it's a really weird, fickle world yeah, where yeah. you're kind of here today and gone tomorrow, and it's it's pretty bloody brutal. And I imagine it's very different now to when you started with the advent or the popularity of social media and how that has become almost intrinsically linked to it, and how everybody's opinion is 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 there out in front of you. And I guess that's something that will will we'll, We'll cross a little bit later on uh, in this, but I wanted to just go back to those sort of early years, how and why you got into the media, how you got to, obviously you, you met your wife, Gemma, you got married, you had Ethan, just how did that, was that just like a natural process? You'd gone to university, you wanted to get into media, you worked up sort of through the ranks. How did that, how did that in those days work and, and how was it in the background trying to sort of raise a family and, and all the usual sort of things? I don't, I don't think it was a natural process in terms of ending up doing what I was doing. I, I was one of those people who went to university without really any firm idea of what I was going to do. I just went and did a degree in a subject history, which I happened to be quite good at, but I had no idea what I'd ever use it for. And yeah, for quite a while at university, I was like, what on earth am I going to do? I even went for a selection day for the graduate trainee scheme with the Metropolitan Police. But it's just one of those stages we were out sort of year three, we're thinking, what am I going to do? I don't know what to do in my life. And, you know, you go to the milk ground at university when lots of different organisations come to this careers fair. And I ended up down in Hendon for two days. Um, thankfully, I, I got kicked off the course because I've got a dodgy knee and they didn't want to take someone on who might cost them a lot pension-wise. Uh, it was a lucky escape at the end. But what I was doing at university is we had, we had a, an internal television station called Guild TV, um, and I started working for them and I started doing a show on a Friday lunchtime called The Lunchbox. Literally nobody watched it. It went out on the, on the little TV screens. It was the, the era before widescreen, the little, little TV screens in the Guild of Students in the bars. 
And I got a real taste for broadcasting and a taste for presenting. And I thought, I really like this. I feel like I'm quite good at it. And it wasn't really until I actually left Birmingham University in 95, I thought, right, this, this is what I want to do. I've kind of had my light bulb moment and this is, this is the route I'm going to go down. And that took three and a half years from leaving Birmingham in 95 to eventually getting a job on Blue Peter at the tail end of 1998. Um, it took a long time to get there, a lot of knocking on doors, a lot of you know, having auditions and people mm. telling me, one famously, who was the, the editor of Children's BBC at the time, I don't see you ever working in kids' TV, rather ironically and deliciously. And 18 months later, I was working for CBBC as Blue Peter presenter number 27, which was a lovely, sweet moment. But yeah, it wasn't until I came out of university yeah. that I really had a fixed idea what I wanted to do. I honed in on Blue Peter. That was, the, that was the show I'd loved watching as a kid. I knew what an amazing show it was to work on as a presenter. And that's the one I went for. But three and a half years it takes to get there. And yeah, I think it's a weird old thing. Back in those days, kids' TV is so different now. I just look at Ethan, my son, and look at his viewing habits. It's nothing like it was when we were kids because the, the choice yeah, is great. massive. And, and so he watches very little of CVBC or children's ITV or stuff on the actual telly. It's, it's ostensibly YouTube and, and other things like that. Yeah. So that kind of, I, I was lucky enough to work in probably the final, I don't want to sound too ostentatious saying this, but the kind of last sort of golden era of children's television when there wasn't all these distractions. While I was on Blue Peter, the the digital age did begin to come in, so the CBBC digital channel arrived about halfway through. But there was no social media. Um, yes, the internet was around, but there wasn't the, the level of stuff to watch on there. So, you know, we'd get a Christmas show back then that would get six or seven million watching it. Now, those are the kind of TV audiences now that, that yeah, the producers and TV execs would die for. Um, I think Blue Peter now yeah. is lucky... And it's not because the show is now inferior. It's just a different era. We'll be lucky to get three, 400,000 watching it. So it's totally different. So yeah. we were kind of just in this era where it was still watched by a lot of people. And I, I found the whole fame thing quite a weird dynamic. There was part of me that was very interested in what it would be like to be famous. But I think that interest and that novelty factor probably lasted about six months. And I think in the end, I loved the job. I loved what I did. But that side of things I didn't really particularly enjoy. So I, I tried to lead as, as normal a life away from the, the cameras as I could. So kept my same group of friends that I have now. Just did normal things. Um, and I felt like family life with Ethan and Gemma at the time. Well, not Ethan. I mean, Ethan, he came quite a, a while after I left with Peter. But, you know, everything away from the TV cameras was, was very, very normal. But I think picking up on the the alcohol thing from earlier, I think that was one of my, you know, if we, we, we know in life we, we all will wear masks at certain points, you know, it might be the mask we put on when we're at work because we're maybe not in a good place but we need to, you know, exude a, uh, an image of, of confidence and that we know what we're doing so we put the work mask on and I, I often used to feel with what I did is that when I went to social situations I would kind of dread them because in my head, I would think people expect me to be a certain person. They expect me to be the person on the television yeah. screen. And yeah, that is a version of me. But clearly, I don't go round in presenting mode. So I'd sometimes get people say, you don't sound like you're <laughs> on the TV. And I said, well, I, I'm not presenting. You know, I'm just being me. But you would feel that unspoken 
and actually non-existing pressure to be someone else where actually people were just interested in seeing you but you thought they wanted the sort of the the, the sort of version that would have reams of stories to tell and would be the, the life and soul of the party and so I often would use drink to yeah. kind of hide behind to sort of calm me down and make me more relaxed and not worry about that kind of stuff so much so there was always that kind of tension between loving the job loving what I did but not particularly enjoying the other side of it because everybody thinks that I mean I you instinctively think that you know people I feel like yeah. I, I know you and I know about you and I know what you would be like and I know but of course I don't we've, <laughs> we've never met we're talking here we've spoken a couple of times but we've never actually met I know nobody meets nowadays because because we can do these things online but I guess people think that they know you and they have an mm. they have an opinion of you uh, whether that's good yeah. bad or indifferent which is a natural thing because we all have opinions you know if you look at certain football players for example you look at them and the way they play and the way they conduct themselves and you formulate an opinion which is probably nothing like the reality of what they're like in their I'm going to yeah. use the word normal yeah. life away from football but everybody thinks that they that they know you I mean I I say I dabbled with it when we did SAS Who Dares Wins and people would come up to me and they'd want to talk to me so I, I can only imagine what it's like when you go yeah. for dinner for example uh, and you just want to go for dinner and then someone wants to talk to you and you've got to be nice and you've got to just yeah. be I'm not saying that you wouldn't be nice but sometimes you just yeah, just want exactly. to go for dinner uh, have a few drinks and let your hair down so I completely and I can only imagine what it's like but I guess that's the the curse that goes with the blessing of having exactly. a public persona yeah. and, and that sort of side of things which unfortunately goes with the territory so uh, as you've sort of gone through that present I guess that got heightened as you got to Sky because obviously then you've got the online stuff and the popularity of football and, and I know you did some of the cricket AM and then the championship and then the premiership and that's um and became one of the sort of main presenters on there. But I wanted to bring you up to date a little bit. And this is why I feel like, I'm not going to say I know you, but I feel like I've got like a, a weird connection with you, even though, as I say, we've never met. Because um, when the the news or the story broke with, your, with mm. Gemma's diagnosis, I had been diagnosed with prostate cancer June or July of yeah. 2017. And I'd had a, a prostatectomy in September, so I'm just approaching five years and I when I I saw or heard the news uh, it was incredibly humbling to see what was happening to you and more importantly mm -hmm. in the public eye so you couldn't shy away from it and obviously such such terrible news uh, as you know I lost my son James in Afghanistan in mm -hmm. 2013 and it was a massive shock and when I look back retrospectively, I wouldn't say my, my life ended on that date, but around that time, my life, that old life kind of stopped and was where it was. And then the new life started. It may even be a few years after that. Uh, and I'm sure you've had similar experiences. It was like a limbo period in between. So shock and dealing with all these things were, were really, really intense. And I've been through the cancer treatment myself, which Touchwood was successful, but I know my wife Sharon, when I'd had my diagnosis, it affected her probably more than it affected me because, you know, I, I knew my options were X, Y, and Z. I knew that was what was going to happen. And if it didn't work, then, you know, then, then there's not much I can do about it. But for her, it was a bigger deal and she broke down and it was, it was horrible to watch her. So I was wondering when that sort of happened with you, obviously you had a, 
a young family, you've been together for a while, and it, from the outside it certainly looks like you had a, a beautiful relationship and a lovely family. How how was that shock? How Was it like, like I experienced like a numbing thing? And even when I'm talking to you now, my fingers have gone a little bit numb. It just... It just is something that I don't think I'll ever, I, I, I never, the, the senses that I didn't know I had that came to the mm. forefront when we lost James were, I just couldn't, I couldn't, I'm not intelligent enough to articulate them to people. And I think when something like that has happened to you, when it happens to somebody else, you get a natural, I'm not going to say that I'd understand what you've been through, but there's a natural empathy that you know some of the things that are happening and the vortex of emotion and challenges that go with it. So... I just wanted really to, uh, if you don't mind speaking about it, just just get your, you know, if you can reflect back at that. And obviously it was, I'm sure, mm. a huge shock. How how was that whole dynamic for you? Not necessarily Gemma, but for you as Simon, as her husband and the father uh, of Ethan. Yeah, it's always difficult to work out how you can describe moments of life like that in ways that people who thankfully haven't had to go through something like you've gone through or I've gone through or many listening to this would have gone through. Um, I think probably the best way to describe that period is it's a little bit like your your whole being mentally and physically goes kind of into this kind of code red shock. Uh, and every every emotion that we can feel at any point in day-to-day life is is cranked up to volume 10. So you're feeling every kind of range of emotion, but at its, at its most heightened, whether that's anger at, at what's happening and a sense of injustice that is this is happening to her this is happening to us that will be at its absolute maximum um that feeling of fear or what what's going to happen next are they going to pull through this am i potentially going to get launched into the world of losing someone and then having to you know, navigate a child through the loss of a mother and bring them up on my own for, for however long that fear is is cranked up to volume 10. Um, so everything's very, very heightened. I remember fear uh, being probably the biggest emotion you were dealing with a lot. I think the anger tended to come later after she after she passed away. That That's when the anger sort of came in. But that's probably the best way of describing it is that, you know, the fear, the anxiety, um, that feeling of helplessness. You can't control what's happening. You can be there to be alongside them. But ultimately, you can't control the outcome, and that feeling of helplessness is 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 horrible um, because you. I think it's it's not solely a man thing, but I think it's probably something that we as men feel a bit more, and that is that that need to fix something, to be the the the, the guy who comes in and sorts everything out, yeah. and, and you can't. Yeah, I can't. I cannot solve this. I've got to put my trust in, you know, her her specialist, I've got to put my trust in the treatment that she's been given, I've got to put my trust in the NHS, I've got to put my trust in lots of other people. All I can do is comfort and be alongside them. Um, and I've, I found that sense of helplessness really, really difficult to deal with. Um, but I think, yeah, fear is probably the the biggest thing you have to deal with when you're, you're faced with something like that, because out of that not being able to control the outcome comes the fear of how you deal with the outcome. Agree. And, and you're right when you're saying everything's, I feel it's almost like a hot situation, isn't it? Everything mm. becomes hot. There's no, there's no comfort anywhere. There's always something um, 
when James passed, obviously we were one minute going about our normal life and then one minute yeah. everything had just unravelled and James was was 22 when he died and I was 18 yeah. when he was born. So it had been part of my life forever. And then there's the practicalities as well, things like work, things like, you know, telling people, um, telling family, telling friends. Um, but for me at, at work, and I can... What, what was that like, obviously, because you were in the public eye, you had, uh, I'm sure, commitments work-wise uh, leading up to it because it was, it was over such a short period of time. How did you feel with that sort of side? Did you feel, I'm not going to use the word supported because obviously you can't, how can someone support you because they wouldn't have had an understanding of what it was, but did you feel that there was an empathy and understanding or did they leave you to, to do your thing and then come back to them? How did that work? Because I worked for a relatively small company uh, and whilst I was obviously given time off, I thought there was a pressure for me to come back and it was the usual, yeah. it will give you something to concentrate on, something to focus your mind. Of course, it, it makes it a million times worse because everything becomes pointless. You know, The motivation you had to go to work, to get a house, to go on holiday, had completely yeah. like, died with them. So you know, I almost found it worse than if someone had if someone had almost said nothing to me and acted like life was very normal. So I just wondered what your experience was like, because obviously, again, you're in a public profile, you're in a male-dominated environment, as it was at the time in terms of football presentation. I just wondered how that all worked out. Actually, Sky were actually brilliant through that entire period. And, you know, I did assume slash expect that, that at some point they would say that, same kind of thing that you've been talking about that you know you need to come back you know it's gonna it'll help you help take your mind off everything that's that's happened uh, i think clearly without putting my job on a pedestal it really isn't but one of the unique things about it is that you do your job in front of people so if you're in a really vulnerable place and you're in a really bad place and you're struggling to really focus on your actual job there's no hiding place once you once you're on air there's nowhere to hide. So I think they were very aware of of that and not putting pressure on me. And I do remember being full of fear because actually <clears throat> the morning after Gemma died, the first real fear that Ethan uttered on that Saturday morning because she passed away on a Friday was this. And he, I remember him coming up to me in the lounge and quite tearful, understandably. And he said, can I ask you something? And I said, yeah, of course, of course you can. And it was all about weekends because when I was working, when it was the football season, I'd have games sometimes in the midweek, but always a game at the weekend. So I would head off normally on a Friday night if the game was, was not nearby. And then we'd come back sometime later on the Saturday and the, Gemma and he would do something on the Saturday. So that was his, his rhythm, his life. That's what he kind of had ex expected every weekend. Well, now everything's changed. And so he said to me, you know, at weekends, and I went, yeah, you know, I said, you know, you used to go off on a Friday and you do your game and then come back on a Saturday. I said, yeah. He said, well, I used to do stuff with mummy. What do I do now? And I could see the real fear in his eye immediately. And it's like, oh my goodness. So already the, the realities of what have happened, the implications yeah. of what has happened are beginning to present themselves quite early on, less than 24 hours later. And that's a really hard thing as a dad to hear. Um, and again, you want to protect them and, and hold them. And I just remember saying to the time, you don't need to worry about this just yet. But already in my head, I'm thinking, what, what the hell does happen? You know, I can't, I can't, I can't see how I go back yeah. to this. I can't see how I'm going to be in a place anytime soon where a, I can do it, 
but actually be that I really care. I totally identify with what you said a, a minute ago. Well, what, who cares about going on holiday right now and being able to provide the money to do that? It doesn't matter anymore right now. It doesn't matter. And football really didn't matter. It took me months before I'd even watch a game. No, it wasn't because I'd suddenly hated football. I just had no interest in it. It just didn't matter. So I thought, oh, there's no way I can mm. stick myself in a football studio and have Graham Souness and Gary Neville arguing about a penalty decision. Because I know that in my head I'll be going, I couldn't give a shit. I don't care. I don't care. Right now I don't care. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. To them and to people watching, they do care. Yeah. So I knew I couldn't put myself in that situation. And yeah. Sky were incredibly good at, at never putting pressure on me. They tried to come up with different ways of making it work um, around... Ethan. So they're always thinking about how can we make this work for Simon? We don't want to lose him. We don't want him to give up on his career. But it was by the time we kind of got to April of, of 2018, between myself and them. And, you know, it's always worth saying FRM because I don't want people to misinterpret this. We were, if blessed is the right word, we were blessed by the fact that thankfully, because of being a freelancer for Sky. So I'm not employed by Sky, I wasn't employed by Sky, I was freelance. So there's benefits that come with that. The downside is there's no pension, there's no health cover, there's none of that. You have to put that all in place yourself. And one of the things I put in place with yeah. a very wise financial advisor that I have was life cover for not just me, but also Gemma. So because of that, we, we, had, a, we had a payout which gave me the financial freedom and flexibility to be able to step away from Sky and go, right, for the next year or so, my priority is navigating Ethan through this next 12 months and getting him to a place where he yeah. feels stronger and more able to, to enjoy life and, and then I'll think about work again. I mean, it's turned out to probably, you know, with everything that's gone on and how much the broadcast landscape has now changed, possibly the worst time ever to have stepped away from broadcasting. But I, I wouldn't... Yeah, I wouldn't change it. It was the right decision and I had the ability to do it. And I'm very aware there'll be people, be people listening to this for whom that wasn't an option. There, you know, there wouldn't have been life insurance in place. So I'm yeah. just very thankful to my advisor, Royal, those years ago, who was quite firm. Obviously, they can't tell you what to do, saying I really would get it for both of you. And, and we benefited from that kind of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, a bit of a game changer for you. Uh, and as as time, I guess, progressed, uh, and as uh, as you sort of navigated that and things moved, was there? I mean, I, I know you're a great mm. man of faith, and, and faith's had a huge part in in your. I'm not going to use hate. There's no good term yes. for it. But yeah. Let's use the word recovery for want of a better word, if that's the right word for it now. Because um, I say I hate all those words, stories, back anything. Oh, it, it makes it makes me shiver. But there are no good words for it. So you obviously yeah. you didn't. Obviously, you, you wrote the book. Uh, you, you hosted a podcast. Uh, you've used your faith. You've used your public persona and your um, profile to raise awareness for Blood Cancer UK, um, which I guess is a huge thing for you to raise that awareness. Uh, and I know it's become like almost not mm. not your life's mission, but an important part of to raise awareness of blood cancer. I think there are so many types of cancer and it affects so many people that the more people talk about it and speak about it, especially as youngish people, because mm. as I say, I was diagnosed at 44. I'm not sure how old uh, Gemma was, but 40. she was still a, a very young lady. And yeah. I guess we always, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, it makes no sense. These things mm. don't make any sense. But then children yeah. get diagnosed with 
all thoughts of cancer. So in, in raising awareness, I think it's a really good thing. Have the, all these things been cathartic? So the book, the podcast, the, the cancer awareness, have these all been things that you've used to help you? And, you know, the best way of helping yourself sometimes is to help other people which is why the charity strong men exists and it's for me it's cathartic because we help people yeah. and that consequently helps us uh, would, would you say that was a big part of it was that conscious or was that subconscious or was it just something that became more important to you than say possibly I think your, your presenting it's probably subconscious at first uh, i think as time has gone on it's become more important than what i do for a job but my job's still really important because all those things are good, but as you'll know, they don't they don't put food on the table, mostly. <laughs> so yeah. you still need to, you yeah, still need unfortunately, to yeah. you know, have a living and do what you do what you do, you know, what you're known for and what you're good at. Um, but I think definitely cathartic, I think all of those different aspects you just mentioned, writing the book was was very cathartic. I sometimes think about the book and think what would a book look like now if I'd never written a book and someone said would you write a book on the last four and a half years I think it'd be quite a different book I wouldn't probably decide to suddenly sugarcoat everything I think that was one of the things I really didn't want the book to be which is why some people have you know they've said to me people I've known and people I don't know have said I found it really really difficult to read but that's because as you know death is very uncomfortable and very difficult difficult and it's not easy <laughs> yeah so i didn't want to sugarcoat it i don't yeah. think i would now i think yeah my appreciation of, of everything now would be very different i think i started writing it when was it um 2018 <clears throat> towards the end of 2018 so sort of september october 2018 so not even a year on and probably finished it sort of summer of 2019 so a lot of the emotions uh, were still quite raw and real. I wasn't having to think back on how I was feeling about anything. I was still kind of feeling it. So that meant it was quite raw and I was very honest about my struggles and very honest about how it felt. I think if I wrote it now, it probably would be different because I think as time goes on, you can't make sense of lots of things whilst you're in it, whilst you're in the midst of your bod body and mind yeah. being in kind of code red like I was talking about make any sense of what's going on but now as you look back with the kind of passage of time getting ever longer you can go oh that's why I felt like that that's why when it felt like friends were deserting me that's what actually was behind that but at the time I was just full of bitterness and anger that why were they just suddenly not around as much but mm -hmm. now I can look back and go well I know I know what was going on there now because I've learned so much about you know, the area of grief, I've learned so much about myself, I've learned so much about mental health and all those kind of things. So I think that, I think, you know, doing bits of Blood Cancer UK and raising awareness, all of them have been part of the, I, I call it, you know, not the recovery process, it's the part for me of finding life again in whatever shape that, that takes. And it's, they, mm. they've all been a, a big part of it. And actually finding a new version of yourself because whether you like it or you don't, this a moment like this oh, yeah. will what? change you. The only question is, is it going to change you in a positive or a negative way? Because understandably, understandably, it finishes some people off and they never really recover. And I can totally understand because I felt like I would never recover. I remember a really powerful thing my 
sister once said, and it wasn't to me, it was to my, my wife, Darina. And it was a conversation two or three years ago, I think it was. And I was less than three years ago because I was in a, a much better place by this point. But he said, you know, when we look back on where Simon was after everything happened, she said, I had a real fear we'd never get our old brother back. Well, they never got that version of me back, but it was mm -hmm. kind of that, you know, that just to see yeah. someone smile again, see a, a sense of lightness in their being again. You know, that, but that doesn't happen to everybody. Um, it just doesn't for, for lots of different reasons. But, no, you yeah, know, it's all those right. things I think have been a key part of, yeah. of helping me to find life again and actually appreciating life and understanding life and understanding people and how complex we all are, but understanding how grief affects people in very different ways, how mental health struggles can be very, very different from person to person. And all of these things, are, I hope, I hope have made me a kind of more rounded person pro than probably I was five years ago. Well, absolutely. And I think I'm, I'm the mm. same as you. I'm a different, a very different person than I was. If I reflect back, we're coming up to nine years and, you know, I would, I'm not going to say I was a chancer back yeah. in those days, but I was all reckless, but I was very much more that way inclined. Whereas now I'm much more precise. Mm. I'm aware of the implications yeah. and the impacts of things, but I'm a different person I understand myself better. I understand people better. Uh, and, and I hope that many other people... The weird thing is, is when I've changed, the friends that I've retained, and you're right, I've lost friends and family along the mm. way, um, but I've gained friends and family along the way. But the ones I've retained, I must be a different person to them, but I wonder if I am, whether, you know, how they view me. And I've never really asked them. I must ask them, but it, it's, a, it's a difficult question. You're right. And I wanted to ask you, I mean... With the with the charity Strongmen, obviously you're aware of. We have mm. we saw we support a lot of widows, and one of the things that often comes up is as they look to to form new relationships, they have real yeah. struggles with with guilt, um, with all the different aspects. And obviously that I, I don't have an understanding of that. Uh, it's not something that I fortunately have an experience of. But that kind of like that, almost like that the fear of mm. people saying, "Well, you got over her quickly," that sort of thing. So. Uh, you've you've recently remarried to Darina. I just wanted to get mm. your side of things on that, and maybe her side of things on that, and also Ethan's side of things on that, and perhaps even if if you're mm. happy to speak about Gemma's family's side of things on that, because when James died, he had a, a girlfriend he'd been with for a very long time, uh, and I can't say they yeah. would marry, but I believe their future would have been together, and we were very close to them for a period of of time, but as she found someone else and the way she dealt with it, we were very uncomfortable with and we haven't spoken with her for a long, long time. And it's a shame because before James went out to Afghanistan, uh, I, we were sat on the services on the M4 just before we got to Wales and he gave me the old dad, if anything happens, this is what I want you to do sort of stuff. And, and one of them was to was regard to his girlfriend, Ollie, and what he wanted to do for us looking after her, which which we did. But I wish that we'd maintain yeah. some form of relationship with her, but we weren't able to. Uh, and that's fine, but I just wondered how, because I'm sort of coming at it, your side from a slightly different angle, how, how the whole dynamic with everybody, how that was. It's a real delicate process. So how it was for you, for Darina, for Ethan, for your in-laws, that sort of side of things. Again, if you're comfortable to talk about that, I'd be... I know some of the guys that we support would be Well, there's be two interested things I'd initially say that. to that is that one of the, the things that I've learned as, as time's gone on, and again, this is something I probably see very differently now to how 
I would have seen it if we were having this conversation three or four years ago, is that when something like what's happened to you, what's happened to me, what have happened to the guys listening to this happens, is obviously you're at the epicenter of what's happened. It's going to affect you the most profoundly. You've lost your son. I've lost my first wife. We are the ones who are going to feel this the most acutely. In terms of the practical implications of what's happened, it's going to sit squarely on our shoulders. So I'm the one who's going to have to deal with my son now being without a mum. But around that, the kind of epicenter yeah. of, of, of grief is you. But around that, the shockwaves of what's happening reverberate out far beyond where you can really understand. And obviously it hits next the hardest will be Gemma's family. And it hit, obviously, her mum and her sister really, really hard. Mm. And five and a half years on, not five and a half, four and a half years on, you know, they're, they're struggling still. And I totally get that. And then my family it hits and then friends and... That the shock waves of grief go out way beyond where you are, and people will grieve in different ways yeah. and will grieve for longer periods. And you might look on sometimes and go, "Well, I feel in a really good place now." I, of course, there's that sadness still there, but I feel a sense of fulfilment in life. And yet, you're still you're still in that place. Well, everybody's you know journey through this is going to be very very different, and you have to get to a point of understanding that that that's the way grief works. It affects people in very different ways for very different periods of time. Um, so that's one thing I had to learn with, with all of this. And the second thing is that there is, there is that tension when it comes to people finding love again, that we have when it comes to people who have been bereaved. And, and that is that on the one hand, I think our friends and family, like what I was saying about my sister saying that line about, not getting their old brother back, is that they want the comfortable version of you back. They want, they want you to be the easy person to be around again, not the emotional one, not the one who's fluctuating one minute between yeah. tears and then anger and then frustration and then denial or whatever it might be. They want that easy person to sit alongside again, but there's that tension with, but they almost, our society thinks there's, there's a period in which you should be wearing kind of sackcloth and be miserable and mournful and dark and down. And no one's really decided how long <laughs> yeah. that should be. But I think the general rule of thumb appears to be when people find new relationships again is it's always too early. I think with some, it, you know, it could be 10, 15 years later. And I don't think anyone yeah. would probably say that's too early. But there's just this weird undeclared period of time before which... You, you're not allowed to be in a relationship again because that well that's getting over it too quickly or that means you know and I think people wrongly equate meeting yeah. someone again to everything being forgotten you know the reality is Gemma will never be forgotten because yeah you know largely because I have well, he's now 12 nearly 13 I have a boy who lives every day happy though he is and well balanced though he is and no matter how much he, he loves Dorina and Dorina is just such a rock for him he will still grow up in a world that I can't even understand. I lost my dad two years ago, but for 47 years, my yeah. dad was around. So I have no idea what this has been like for Ethan to know that mm. for the last four and a half years, since the age of eight, he's not had his mother alongside him. I can't begin to understand what that's like. Um, so there will always be those who will go, it's too early. And it will come from a place of, probably a lack of understanding. I think as I went along, it also came from a place of bitterness 
because actually when in the early days I began to say a few things publicly about being in a relationship again, some of the most, I don't, I don't think they hurt me, but they hurt Darina when she saw them. Some of the most vociferous, nasty comments. Once I had a little look into who these people were, more often than not, they were people who'd gone through something similar. And it, it was like for a while they, they identified with you. You were the kind of the guy who was now in the place that they are and you were speaking very publicly about what it was like and you were kind of um, reflecting how they were feeling. But then suddenly happiness began to creep back into my life and it felt like some people just didn't like that. They didn't like the fact that this guy, hang on a bit, that's not fair because I've been, mm. I've been a widow for 10 years and I've, I can't find love again um so that i think there's a, there's a lot of complexities to it mm. about when's the right time what's too early what's not too early should you ever find love again um and it's it's difficult for someone like me in that i wasn't given the opportunity to ever have those conversations because it was three three and a half days between diagnosis mm. and Gemma dying so there was no time to even have conversations about Ethan, because mm. she didn't, the diagnosis at that point was not, you're going to die. It was, you're seriously, seriously ill. We've got to do everything in the next few days to get you stable. There was never any talk about right. that because it was just, it was just getting through those first few days. So I don't have a conversation to go on. I know there are people for whom they have been told by their, their other half who's gone that they want them to find love and happiness again. And there are some, I think this is a bit unfair, who've been told in no uncertain terms, you must not. Um, you know, which seems a bit harsh. So it's, you know, it's a complex, it's a com complex area. And I think Doreen found it very hard in that I think for her, there's, there's, there's this massive head screw mm. and that, and that is that no one chose for this to happen. You know, we've got some friends and she's married, um, a guy who's, yep. who's divorced, his, his wife had an affair and they got divorced. And now our friend has, has married him. He comes with his own kids, so she's got stepchildren. But there's a definite decision that's been made by him to be where he is, to then be in a position to start dating our friend and eventually get married. What happened to us, there was no, no one made that choice. It, it was just, it happened. And so there's that head screw mm. of, for Darina of like, well, this, no one chose for this to happen. But I try and remind her, yeah, but when I met you, there was choice every step along. We make choices in life all of the time. Some of them are subconscious, some of them are ones that we're very aware of. But we make choices every single day. And so there still was a choice about, do I like her? There's a choice about, do I want to see her again? There's a choice about, do I pick the phone up to her and ring her again? And ultimately, there, there was a choice to be made, do I want to marry you? And a choice to be made about when I ask. So it's, there's, mm. there's that tension of knowing that there was no choice in what happened, but there is a choice in what comes next. And, you know, I think, you know, it can be difficult for, for the family of those left behind, like you were talking about earlier, because it feels like you're being left behind and it feels like they've disappeared off into the sunset and they've now got their life and your son's girlfriend has now got her life and you're just going, but don't forget don't forget us. Don't forget what happens. Don't forget our son. You know, all these kind of things It can look like you've just forgotten and disappeared. But the truth is, no one's forgotten. But at some point, 
you've got to be allowed. People who've gone through something like this are allowed to be happy again. They are allowed to enjoy life again. And, you know... Of course they are. I think... Of course they are. 100%. That's the most important thing, isn't it? And and it's... I guess like all aspects of life, communication Mm. with things like this is so important um, as you move forward. Because you're right, you'll always have that connection yourself because Ethan's... uh, grandparents aunties etc they're still there and in place and as i say it was different for us with with james's girlfriend but but we would have loved to have had that continued connection because we could almost see him through her whatever she chose to do in life and 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 it wasn't so much an issue that she chose that she'd found someone and found love brilliant i'm really really happy for her it was just sometimes in the way it was done and i think it's such a difficult it's i can't think of anything more difficult out of these sort of situations than, than that sort of process because you say everybody's at a different point everyone has a different relationship uh, we're almost in the position that we were the parents of James um, but you're right everybody's different and you have to respect that a little mm. bit but it is it is a real challenge so when you were saying earlier that that you've changed as an individual when you do look back at that and no doubt you do because I know I do I look back over those times especially mm. when you're approaching your five-year anniversary we're approaching nine you look back at how far you've come. I think mm. that's the thing, isn't it? There is still life out there to be lived. There is still happiness. Mm. I've managed to retain my sense of humour. Uh, and mm. that's... People get quite awkward about that sometimes. have got a real dark sense of humour around yes. certain <laughs> subjects. I don't know if, if you're the same, but yeah. why shouldn't I find things funny? Why can't yeah. I take the piss out of things that are really horrible and bad? Yeah. You know, that's how you get through these things, isn't it? But it's... So it's, it can be like you were saying you can be an awkward person and it can make for real difficult conversations mm. amongst people mm. who don't really understand the whole process of things so now you're where you are uh, you, you've remarried um, you've started work again and, and I'm I mean I'm yeah, assuming was. that was challenging to get back on the bike in that respect I remember watching a couple of seasons ago I started I went back last but yeah it'd been three and a half years something like, I'm, 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 first I'm getting sh- back in the last game I'd done so it was yeah it was a big moment Mm. and you're right everything's changed so much social media has become such a thing there is criticism there of everything you do you know if you'd if you'd done a cliff richard for the rest of your life i'm sure you you would have been criticized you can't win with some people but how that's a really difficult process probably it's something that you've you can manage relatively easy because you're used to it but for i guess you get real concerns around darina and ethan in particular because they're going to grow up and I'm guessing he's going to grow up in that social media world. And I guess that's, you know, that protective arm that no doubt you throw around him for most things is, is there all the time. And I guess that's one of those things that you, that you, that you, that you're going to have to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's horrendous. There's so much parents now have to think about that, that our parents didn't. I mean, I'm sure they had their own very valid, real, anxieties around us when we were growing up but not this um and i think like with everything it's about communication isn't it and about setting expectations and setting boundaries so we were clear with ethan that you know he would not have a phone until he began senior school and he began senior school last year so he's going to year eight this year and you know ahead of getting him a phone it was about establishing the rules and the expectations of what that would be. So, you know, Ethan, we're going to get you a phone in September, but you're not going to be on WhatsApp. You're not going to be on social media apps because you're still too young for them. Um, 
and we will have screen times set on it. Um, and it was kind of agreeing to that, saying that's how it's going to be. Are you happy with that? Yep, okay. So we can get you a phone. So it's kind of establishing the rules early on uh, in the knowledge that ultimately once they're out the front door, I can't and Doreen can't control what he might see on someone else's phone at school. But it's about when, when they're back home, yeah. just putting in enough in place to protect him as far as you can. Because that, that's the scary thing with it all, Ephraim, is that you can't necessarily protect them. In, a lot of this bullying is happening in, in, in kids' bedrooms. You know, bullying at school meant when I was at school and you were at school mm. would be a physical confrontation. It would be seeing the bully and a verbal exchange or, in the worst case scenario, a physical exchange. Now it's, it's far more subtle but actually more brutal. You know, going home with a bruise on the arm, as I did a couple of times, is very different to seeing something online in the darkness of your room at home that can leave you in a desperately bad place emotionally and mentally. Yeah. Um, but again, it's about communication. It's about being open with him and saying, you know, if you ever see anything about making him aware of what he's going to see and may have seen, and if he's worried about stuff, keeping the lines of communication open that he must never feel judged and never feel bad and never feel like we're going to, you know, pounce on him and be really cross with him because he tells us something that he's worried about. And then just, you know, things like very simple things, but leading from the front, you know, <clears throat> parents who have a problem with their kids having phones in their bedroom. Well, where's your phone at night? If it's in your bedroom, they've learned that behavior from you. So why it's going to be very difficult to turn around mm. and say, you're not having your phone in your bedroom. So I, I was charged by them, sat in my kitchen now in the utility room. That's where Ethan charges his. And he knows that it, it, it's not for the bedroom. So you can only do so much, Ephraim. You, know, you, can, you can only do so much, but we'll, yeah. we try as much as we can. But I think with all of this, communication is the most important thing. And letting them feel that they know they can come to you with anything. Because if they feel they're going to be judged or told off or made to feel stupid, then they will hide stuff. And that's the, the worst thing they can do. 100%. Well, like I said earlier, communication, it's never been yeah. any different in life. Um, sometimes it's difficult, isn't it, to go with, you know, to go with mm. stuff and to talk to people about stuff. But generally speaking, it's it, it's worth it. And I think that's, you know, I've I've learned, particularly again over the last few years, how important it is to communicate with, with Sharon, with my wife and my daughter, Yasmin, and yeah. with my friends around me. It's, you've just got to be open and honest with people. Mm. And it doesn't mean you're always right. It doesn't mean you're always wrong. You're kind of indifferent and in the middle, and that's fine. And I think... It's, it's lovely to talk to you specifically about difficult things because I think I get fed up when people say to me, it, you're inspiring and it's inspirational. But, you know, generally, yeah. it really is quite inspiring when you think what you and I have been through and we're still here and we're still able to smile and go yeah. about our life with purpose and to try and help people, try and help ourselves and try and make a, a difference in life. And because it's, I think life is as hard now as it's ever been, whether that's because of what's happened to me, uh, I don't know, but with everything that's going on and everything that's yeah. happened and where we are in life, I think it's more and more difficult to do that. So I think, I think we should pat ourselves on the back a little bit that we're kind of sane and moving forward. And I think that's one of those things. And I'm we're hoping with what we're doing here with the podcast, and thank you very much for your time. It, it, it is really to, mm. to put these things into context a little bit to, to say that they do happen that you know shit yeah. does happen yeah. and, and you do have to deal with it um one way or the other and hopefully in the right way 
moving forwards. And I think hopefully with this podcast, that's the intention of it, is to talk to people like yourselves with, you know, difficult stories, difficult subjects, um, to try and share that journey with other people and people that have been through similar things to you have and I have. And I can't really can't thank you enough. And hopefully people will, will like it. They'll follow it on social media, subscribe and whatever these things are that people do. Absolute pleasure, mate. And thank you, Simon, for your time. I really, really do genuinely appreciate it.